All right. And all God's people said, graduates, we are so grateful for you. And uh, we praise God for this this time in your life. I, uh, I share with you two significant questions. Graduates, I think you'll benefit greatly from these questions. These are questions of of introspection. Because you're a graduate, you know what the word means, correct? These questions aid us in taking a very real look at how we're doing personally in our faith. Uh, Church community, I welcome you into a two-week series where I will be sharing five such questions. Uh, Questions that will help us to to take a strong look at, at our hearts, at our at our walk of faith. These questions I simply call a five questions of self-examination. I'd like to share two with you today and as the Lord leads three the next time we're together. Questions of self-examination. A moment ago, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 20th century pastor and teacher, one who pastored during Nazi Germany and led many institutes of faith, including a seminary underground. Phenomenal witness for the glory of Christ and for the togetherness of the church. He wrote this once, and I love this statement, concerning self-examination. How can I possibly serve another person with unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness worse than my own. Today, I invite you to join me in listening to God's Holy Spirit speak through his word concerning how we are doing in our faith individually. Corporately, I must say, you look really good. Corporately, community looks good on you. I just want you to know that. But one piece of our faith that we cannot see evident is how we're doing personally. And so self-examination is very important. Now, most of us here have seen some evidence of communion. If you've ever participated in communion or the Lord's Supper, would you raise your hand? Doesn't have to be in this church. It can be in any church. Most everyone here understands that statement, communion. The idea of observing communion builds upon a very important verse in the Bible that not only instructs how the church should do communion, but also instructs concerning the importance of self-examination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, the Bible instructs us before we come together, and in that context, the togetherness represented communion. Before we come together, let each one examine himself or herself. Self-examination becomes from the scriptures a Christian discipline that should be a precursor to how we are doing publicly and corporately. None of us like the exercise of self-examination, do we? Taking a hard look at how we're doing privately, We would rather be judged on how we're doing publicly because putting on a good face and putting on a good front becomes quite the easy task 
compared to saying, God, in my private life, have your way. But today the calling comes to you and to me to say to God, God, in my private life, I desire that you have your way. In order for us to come to that point, we must allow God's Holy Spirit to exercise within us this honest self-examination. So there are two questions today to help with this internal perspective that we desperately need if we're to follow the exhortation of the Scriptures which tells us to to examine ourselves. Let he or she examine themselves personally before they come together. This represents the exhortation of the Holy Scriptures. The idea of examination in the Bible comes from a term that actually demonstrates a testing by fire. Let each one test him or herself in the depth of their heart by a greater standard, not that of the standard within self. Because most of us might say, well, compared to others, I'm not doing so bad. Some of us might say, well, considering how other people are acting in this world, I'm not doing such a bad job in my own life. But when we read in Scripture self-examination, what we're reading is a testing of self by a higher standard. And that standard is, of course, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before you uh, draw the conclusion that there should be a more enjoyable topic for an outdoor picnic... Let me assure you, I took that consideration in mind, and that's why I'm only giving you two questions and not five. So I'm being very sympathetic with where we are. This is a beautiful setting, and so I just share with you two questions of self-examination. Question number one, are you truly seeking God with all of your heart? Do you truly seek God? With all of your heart. We find ease in answering that. Because of where we're seated. Most of us may say. Well of course. I'm seeking God with all of my heart. On most days. When situations are favorable. When we begin to put. uh, Conditions on how we seek God with all of our heart. We might lose that sincerity and genuineness of what the scripture truly teaches that we should seek God with all of our hearts. Now, this question comes from a very personal journey that I've had in my own life concerning a particular chapter in the Bible. That chapter is Psalm 105. Let me read these verses to you. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Have we done that today? Amen. Yes, we have. Proclaim his deeds among the people. Have we done that today? Absolutely. Sing to him, sing praise to him, and in your singing, tell of all of his wondrous works. Have we done that? Verse 3 of Psalm 105, honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Yes, we've we've exercised that expression of faith as well. But verse 4, seek the Lord Search him with all of your strength. Seek his face always. Now, I'm not 
asking if you have fulfilled verse 4. Because here, verse 4 actually summarizes the first three verses in order that we might test if we have genuinely done exactly what we said we've done corporately. Now, corporately, we've given things. We've sung. We have, we have accounted for the goodness of God. But verse 4 does not let us off the hook simply because we've participated corporately. For verse 4 guides us into this, seek God's face always. The Hebrew word for seek is the word begash, which actually indicates that one would seek in order to find. How many of you, when you go to your favorite shopping plaza or mall or outlet, seek for a good parking space? Of course you do. How many of you, when the maitre d' or the hostess comes and says, how many in your party for dinner? How many of you are just praying that you will be able to find a good place to sit? Most of us. That type of seeking is not at all what is meant here. For when you are seeking a good parking place, as I do habitually and compulsively, eventually... A dear precious voice in my life will say, will you just park somewhere? And I will have to say, okay, but I'm not going to be satisfied parking somewhere. I want the perfect place where we're close, where there'll be no door dings, where, where we'll be out of harm's way. I want the perfect place. But ultimately, 10 times out of 10, I just satisfy for parking wherever. That's not at all the meaning of the Hebrew word here, but gosh, here... The calling is to seek God and to seek his way until you can be for certain that you have discovered his way for your life. The searching is relentless. The searching becomes personal, not simply a corporate participation. The searching is saying, God, I am hungry for you. I am desiring you. I am seeking you with all of my heart. And I will not be satisfied until I know I am doing life in your presence and with you covering me. This is the calling to seek God with all of our hearts. Psalm 105, verse 4, indicated that we seek his face in the Hebrew culture, which was referenced in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Face always expressed presence. Have your parents ever attempted to get a point across to you and they say to you, look at me when I'm speaking? Has it ever happened? Usually with a stick, yes, look at me when I'm speaking. We're desiring that their attention be on us. I say to my girls all the time, I, I need you to watch my face when I'm speaking to you. Why? Do I want them to see how well I can articulate my vowels and consonants? No. I want them to know from whom the word comes. And I desire that when they hear me, they would see my relationship with them, not mere words. I would desire that they would know here is someone speaking to me that, that loves me, that adopted me and made me his own. I would desire that they would look at me to see here is someone who did whatever it would take to have a relationship with me because he loves me. I would desire that they would see 
that here is someone speaking to me who loves me, and I never did anything on the front end to earn that. He just chose to love me. When we seek to be in God's presence, we are seeking his face. We are seeking him relationally to be in the presence of one the Bible calls Abba Father, who loves us so very much and gave his only son for us. And our worship becomes transformed. Our Bible reading becomes transformed. Our serving others becomes transformed when we realize that by faith we do all of this unto God and in his presence. And if we don't know that that's where we are, we seek him with all of our hearts through Jesus Christ until we know that we're living life in God's presence. And until we're there, perhaps the answer to the question is no. I'm not seeking God with all of my heart. Today, we need to resolve. That we as individuals are seeking God with all of our hearts, seeking his face. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 105 helps us to test in some very specific ways. I'll give you this test very quickly. And I understand I smell barbecue as you do, so we're moving quickly. I'm with you. But listen to this test of, of determining whether or not you or I are seeking God's presence personally and genuinely. Verse 1 would be test number 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make his deeds known among the peoples. The phrase among the peoples in the Old Testament references the nations that did not know God. More often than not, particularly in the Psalms, when you read the phrase among the peoples, pertaining to how one is living their faith among the peoples, the reference would be among the nations that were not God's people. And so the psalmist wrote, proclaim God's deeds among all the peoples. Make sure that all the nations know how good is your God. The first test of whether or not we're seeking God with all of our heart, seeking his face with all of our being, is to determine if we have prioritized our affection and love for God over all other loves. So test your seeking God's face by that first truth or principle. Is your relationship with God your chief affection? Can someone have a texting conversation with you? And within a very short time of three or four exchanges, they know where your affections lie primarily. Can someone exist with you in an activity that is outside the church walls? And can they know immediately that your affection is Jesus, that you're living for him, that you love your God with all of your heart? Unless that characterizes us, we cannot say, according to Psalm 105, that we're seeking God with all of our hearts. Because when we seek him with all of our hearts, we are proclaiming him among the nations, among those who don't know him, among all of the affections that exist around us. It was in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, that a particular church in, in, in the New Testament, Ephesus, was called by the words of Christ himself to say, hey, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Is Jesus your first love? Is God 
Your Abba Father, your first commitment, your chief and only affection that would outrank all other affections in your life. So that's the first test. Second test is here, verse 2. Tell about his wonderful works. That phrase references covenant because the indication would be tell about all the good things God has done for you as you have journeyed. As I met with the, uh, the riding club several weeks ago, I listened to them plan a trip. If you've ever ridden a motorcycle, you know the journey is just as fun as the destination, if not more so. Would you all agree? It's the journey. This phrase, tell of all the wondrous works of God, indicates a covenant relationship that defines the journey. How do we know that we're seeking God with all of our hearts when we're living from within the covenant relationship. When God does not just become a destination, but because of his covenant with us, we walk and desire to walk in his presence 24-7. But for many, God only represents a destination. I hope I'll go to heaven one day. That's very important. And you can only know that through Jesus. But if all you're seeking God for is an appropriate destination, you are certainly not seeking him with all of your heart. You're missing the journey. And the journey is walking with your God in a covenant. I know I pray that uh, our seeking God with all of our heart can be tested by how we're doing the journey. Are we responding to a covenant relationship? God has established with us through Jesus. Or does God just represent a destination? Maybe at the end of our life or maybe a priority once a week. Or do we truly seek him every moment of the day? A final test of whether we're seeking God with all of our hearts. Verse 3 of Psalm 105. Honor his holy name. Honor his holy name. The idea of name here represents God's character, nature, and majesty. Another significant test as to whether we're seeking God with all of our heart becomes referenced by our genuine worship of God. Do we we take time to notice his majesty and his love for us? Romans 5, 8 says... He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches that even while you and I were woefully disobedient to God in the nature of our own sin, God said, I will love them anyway. How many of you are grateful for that? And God said, I will give you my son anyway. Do you see the holiness and the beauty and the power? Of God's love for us, his majesty and his righteousness should all demonstrate that incredible motivation to live in God's presence, responding to his holy name. So these are ways that we can test our genuine desire to truly seek God's face. So the first question is, do you truly seek God with all of your heart? Are you truly seeking him and have these verses been allowed by your own spirit to to test whether or not you're truly seeking God with all of your heart? I'd like to move to a second question and we close here. Question number two comes from a very familiar part of the scriptures in second Corinthians. Chapter five and verse 17, we could quote this, could we not? If any man be in Christ. He is a what? A a new creature. Old things passed away, and behold, all things have become. Y'all know this. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 leads us to the second question of self-examination. We've already asked, hey, are we, am I really seeking God or am I just playing religious games? Second question. Are you ready for this? Which defines your life? Striving to be like Jesus or being in Jesus? Which best defines your life? This is question number two of our self-examination journey. Which best defines your life? Trying to be like Christ or being in Christ? There's a difference. In case you're wondering, is is there really any difference between between the two? Yes. One has to do with striving. Now, I will encourage you to strive to be like Jesus 24-7, every moment, every thought, every act, every purpose, every breath. I believe the Scripture teaches should all have this question, would this honor Jesus? Would Jesus do this? Y'all remember the little bracelets? You know, what would Jesus do? Well, that focuses you on being like Jesus, striving to be like him. But what becomes more important than even that? Surprising to some is not the striving to be like Jesus, but the status God has given you in Christ. You see, the real question is not what would Jesus do? The real question is, what did Jesus do? And what he did for you and for me is that he died on the cross for our sins and he redeemed us and he brought us to himself And the Bible says, and I'll put this as simply as the Holy Spirit will give me utterance. The Bible teaches that Jesus, in his perfection, died a sinner's death, completely perfect, so that me, who had sinned, could be made right with God as if I had never sinned. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I now have a status of being accepted by God, of being made right in God's eyes, I will continue to strive to be like Jesus because I'm not there yet. I still have work to do in my life to measure everything in my life with Jesus. But that is my striving. I have nothing to do with my status except to place my faith in Christ. And the Bible says that when I've placed my faith in Jesus, I have been made right with God. And in that status, I can do nothing to add or take away from it. God has brought me in and adopted me as his child, as his son. And my status is accepted by God. And so while I'm striving to be like Jesus, I'm not striving in a way that I hope my win column outweighs the loss column. I'm striving to be like Jesus in response to what Jesus has already done on the cross to make me acceptable in God's sight. I'm motivated by the status I have as being totally changed. And in my new creation, for that's exactly what the phrase means in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We've been made brand new. The Bible doesn't say God is hoping that you turn out okay. The Bible exclaims you've been made a brand new creation by status. You're right with God because of what Jesus has done. And you've trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sin. 
And now you're striving to be like Jesus in response to what he's already done for you. You're not striving with the hopes of earning what God has already freely given you. One of the greatest chasms to exist today in in modern Christian thought is the chasm between striving and status. And so many good church people are trapped in striving. And when they can't strive like they think they should, they feel shame and defeat and feel that they're never good enough. But if we'll allow God's teaching through the Holy Spirit to take us over that chasm to status, to realize that we've been made right with God, and now our striving is built upon what Jesus has done, not on anything that I think I can do, we are then free in Christ. We're in Christ. We're not just striving to be like Christ. I close with seven facts of a life that is truly in Christ. I'm just going to name these. First, fact number one, Romans 5, 8, your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. You may be thinking, well, pastor, you're preaching to the choir. I I know this. Live out of your status. You've been forgiven. Say no to shame. Say no to the expectation of legalism. You have been made new. So the first fact of being in Christ is that we have been saved. We understand the purpose of the cross. Second fact. We have a Savior. Scripture teaches us in Colossians 2.14 that the debt of our sin has been canceled and nailed like a document to the cross. Have you ever had a document that reminds you how much you have in a financial debt? You ever had a document like that? Feels pretty heavy, doesn't it? And the first thing you look at is, is the number amount getting lower on what I owe? Because you would like to see one day paid in full. You can tear that paper up. Spiritually speaking, we're all indebted to a holy God because we can't be holy on our own. But Colossians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus canceled the debt that we owe God, our sin debt. And he nailed the document, metaphorically speaking, that enumerated our debt. He nailed that document to the cross. So fact number one, we needed a Savior to save us from sin. Fact number two, we have a Savior. Fact number three, we have a substitute. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become right with God. Jesus took your place. You want to make sense of all of this, this precious word of God that I'm holding in my hand, every word of it being true? You want to make sense of this? You want to make sense of why church is vital? Here it is. Jesus took your place. You do not have to die for your sins. How would you not live for him? Not perfectly. But how could you say, well, Jesus, I really appreciate this. I may give you a call when I'm in my 40s. Life will calm down a bit. I'll have I'll have sown my oats. Maybe we can start a relationship. And how could you put that off? How could you and I ignore this as full-grown adults and care more about what we're doing than to whom we do it for? We have a substitute. His name is Jesus. And then our lives have been made spiritual. Ephesians 1.13, you've been saved and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
Do you know that if your faith is in Christ, you are a spiritual being? Trying to figure out how to live in an earthly body. You're not an earthly being trying to figure out how to do spiritual things. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Through what Christ has done. Sixth fact, serve. Oh, when we serve because of the fact that we're in Christ, we are serving because of the affection of our heart for Jesus, not out of obligation. And then the final fact, surrender. Our calling is to surrender to the Lordship of Christ every day because of what he's done for us. There's a song that uh, I was taught when I was very young. The title of the song was called Sunday Child. It was, it was a little ditty that my parents had me memorize. I, I, I still have the tune in my mind. Vince, can you give me the downbeat? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Joking. But the calling was to avoid being a Sunday child. Just showing up one day of week to hopefully pay my homage to some point of faith. No. The calling is to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These are the facts. I think I gave you six, so I gave you the short list. These are facts that help us to determine if we truly are living in Christ. Oh, I pray that your life is indeed in Christ. So question number two, which best defines you living to be like Jesus or living in Jesus? Meaning Jesus becomes your identity. That's what being in Christ expresses throughout the scriptures. And that phrase in Christ is used many times in the New Testament. Is Jesus your identity? Are you living for him? I want to close with a, uh, a fun story, if I may. And uh, because I don't have a third hand, give me one second here. This story comes from author Terry Wardle. I'm just going to read a summary of his story concerning identity. From his book, Identity Matters, Wardle tells the story from his childhood of when he received a hand-me-down, fix-up, big, blue Schwinn bicycle. For Terry, uh, the bicycle was a girl's bicycle, so he had to get over that. I guess handed down from a big sister. One day, Terry's mom finally let him venture outside of his neighborhood. He rode away from his little neighborhood with a newfound freedom on his hand-me-down swing bicycle. He came across a small one-lane bridge that he had walked across many times, but now on his bike, the journey across that little bridge was, was indescribable. But just before he crossed over to the other side of the bridge, there were four teenage boys standing there waiting on him. He recognized them as, as being bullies, that, that he had been warned against, but there they stood. As he crossed the bridge, Terry intended to look past their intimidating stare and just to keep pedaling. But one of the boys reached out, grabbed the handlebar of the bike, spun Terry and his blue string around, and he said, Hey, kid, where do you think you're going? The other boys chimed in, Yeah, who do you think you are? Terry stood trembling with his bike, and finally, one of the bullies said, What is your name, kid? Terry responded, Terry Wardle. The teenage boys became silent. They looked at one another nervously. One of the teens asked, Are you related to Tom Wardle? You see, Tom was a much older cousin of Terry's who happened to be an all-star defensive end on the high school football team. 
Terry said, yes, he's my brother. He was actually Terry's cousin, but at the moment, brother sounded better. The boys immediately backed off. One of the boys straightened Terry's shirt where he had grabbed the collar to intimidate him and said, hey, we were just funning. No harm. You're a great kid. And if anyone ever gives you trouble, you tell us. We'll take care of you. Terry later commented, that was the most formative day for me. For life demands much more from me than I can handle simply being me. I needed a greater identity. Today, life demands more from you than you can actually handle just being you. Now, I know in our American dream, we don't like to hear those words. But life will bring you challenges that you are not able to handle just by being you. But you have a greater identity if your faith is in Jesus. A much greater identity. So when the bully of doubt comes to frustrate your faith, all you need to do is to look at that bully doubt and say, I'm in Christ. You don't have to pretend to manufacture a perfect faith. You don't have to bow back your shoulders and pretend to be Joe religion. You can just simply say to the bully of doubt, I'm in Christ. You can look at the bully of fear and say, I'm in Christ. I have a greater identity. You can look at the bully of of impure temptations and say, I'm enough because I'm in Christ. On and on, this life and the enemy, Satan, will parade bullies right across your path. And many of them will stop to intimidate you, the bully of doubt, fear, lust, the bully of greed, the bully of the unknown. And the reason that this second question is so important is for this very moment right here. All you have to do is look at that bully and say, but I'm in Christ. Because you see, life will give you more than you will ever be able to handle just being you. But when life gives you something and you are in Christ, your identity becomes Christ. And now Jesus empowers you to respond to the doubt, to the fear, to the temptation. And the real question is, is your faith in Christ so that you can be equipped to overcome? The Apostle Paul, first century pastor, wrote this very clearly in the book of Romans. We are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers in Christ. The word in the Greek simply means super conqueror. From the Greek, hooper nikaio. Super conqueror. We can overcome in Christ. So I know there are times you feel beat up, you feel defeated, you feel overwhelmed financially, relationally, physically. We haven't even spoken of the bully of sickness, have we? I know at times you feel beaten up and overwhelmed. You don't have to feel that way. I understand. I understand life's not good at times. 
But Jesus is always good. And you and I need the opportunity to look at that intimidating situation and to say, but I'm in Christ. I have a Savior who has made me co-heirs with him before God. And I'm in Christ. I pray that that is your response from this point forward. Would you bow with me for prayer? I want to pray with you and I want to give you an opportunity to place your faith in Jesus Christ right now. It's not me really giving the opportunity. Jesus is doing this now. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, this is what we read. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You can do that now. Jesus, I believe you're, you're who you say you are. You're, you're Lord. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if we believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we will be saved from our sin. We will be in Christ and we'll no longer have to depend upon our good things because they never measure up. Scripture says if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead. We will be saved from our sin. We'll be made brand new. If you were to ask Tommy, he would tell you it's, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. So today, do you know Jesus? You can pray this prayer in your heart. This is you confessing your heart to Jesus. Would you say these words if you've never trusted Jesus and you know God's opening that door right now? Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I know you died on the cross for my sin. I've played games too long. I confess my sin. And I confess you as Savior and Lord. And I invite you in to forgive me and cleanse me. And to make me brand new. Would you pray that prayer? Pray it now. He hears you. You may say, Pastor, I've never prayed before. Just have a conversation with God who loves you so much. Would you invite Jesus into your heart? Pray that prayer if God has opened your heart and know the forgiveness and the joy of being in Christ. Stop the endless striving to be good on your own and find peace and forgiveness in Christ. If you've prayed that prayer or you need to pray that prayer, as soon as this final song is over, I would like to meet you right here at this where the baptism took place and have a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Father God, thank you for this moment. We love you. Thank you for creating community under a grove of shade trees that were planted when this church was planted. And God, thank you for this ministry. Thank you for this community. Thank you for our relationships that you're using to grow us all in our faith and in our walk with Jesus. Guide us from this point forward for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. Let me encourage you.